0: You're listening to Just One of the Guys, the podcast where there's about a 50-50 chance that your host will be choked up by the end of the episode. Hello and welcome to another powerful and very meaningful episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This, as always, is an internet radio show dedicated to bring you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. Kyle Rayner is still a little bit away in the storyline, but Guy Gardner is definitely in the forefront, as we're going to be wrapping up the awesome, epic part the fourth part of the Yesterday's Sin storyline. The storyline that I think defines the character of Guy Gardner for this period of time. In all estimation, nothing that's come after this in Guy Gardner's history has really been as good. This is a story that Chuck Dixon has brilliantly crafted and put on this page. and Like I said, it defines the character. It makes him from more of just the simple... Bullheaded bruiser that everyone believes him to be. Uh, it's my favorite storyline, and I hope that when we wrap it up, uh, it might be, well, if not your favorite, at least one that you may have found some enjoyment of. But before that, we're going to be covering another big story arc in the Green Lantern books. Uh, we're finishing up the uh, well four-part storyline, or the four-part, the four-issue storyline of the Trinity story arc that crosses over between the Green Lantern books, the Dark Stars book, and Legion, which again stands for Licensed Extra-Governmental Interstellar Operatives Network. Yeah, try and remember that, just Legion's good enough. In my estimation, it's a really underrated crossover. It brings together these storylines or these comic books in a pretty epic storyline, and has. Well, unfortunately, not the payoff ending that probably would've allowed it to be put in the annals of other memorable crossovers. It's a good story arc, it's a bunch of good stories, in fact, uh, the Legion issues I'm actually thinking about picking up in back issues, if I can find them, because the character of Real Dox, who's Brainiac's son, is really kind of an interesting and conniving character, as we'll get to see more in this issue. But we'll get to see more about this character as we cover him in my synopsis after we play a few promos for some podcasts that i think you should be listening to so as soon as we get done with those we'll get into my synopsis of the trinity storyline part two Hello there, lovely ladies. May I just say that you look quite beautiful in your matching Slave Leia metal bikinis. You have permission to come aboard my den of Nerd-Rotica. Some people would call it my mom's garage. I call it 10.1 forward. Can I interest you in a death stick? Nope. I was just kidding. Have a shot of it. Once you get loosened up, we can play a friendly game of Strip Fizzbent. Let me loosen that strap. Hey, suckers. Maury Clawhammer here, okay? You want your freaking Star Wars? I got your Star Wars right here! What about the Star Trek? You like that shit too, right? Right? That's what I thought. Well, we got that and we got more freaking comics than you can read in your entire miserable goddamn life. Hey, there's even a girl who talks about unicorns and goddamn Harry Potter and M... and... uh, them goddamn Oriental cartoons with the big eyes. So you get your ass over to the Two True Freaks podcast at 2 That's spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, alright? Alright? Good. You can get there on the internet and choose from hundreds of quality Two True Freaks podcasts. And would it kill you to buy a goddamn t-shirt? Remember, two true freaks, two true freaks, two true freaks, two true freaks. This is Professor Allen. And when I'm not listening to an awesome podcast, like this one, I'm co-hosting an awesome podcast, The Book Guy Show. Every week, we cover book news, book reviews, comic books, audiobooks, audio dramas, and podcasts. Search for The Book Guy Show on iTunes, or come visit us at bookguys.ca. And word pack. And as usual, before we get into our coverage of the Green Lantern comics and the rest of the Trinity storyline, we're going to take a look at the Just When the Guy's Email Bag. See what you wonderful people have decided to mail into me, criticizing me or praising me. Probably a better chance of criticizing. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> And the first letter this week comes from Mr. Charlie Niemeyer, fellow Oklahoman, well, maybe not native Oklahoman, but fellow Oklahoman nonetheless, and host of the awesome podcast Superman in the Bronze Age, a comic book podcast dealing with, oddly enough, Superman in the Bronze Age. He's uh, getting to uh, this month some random stories in his arc, and I haven't listened to the latest episode, but if it's as good as the previous episodes, it's going to be awesome. Charlie's also going to be starting up here in about a month, the, well actually from release date of this, since I'm recording this ahead of time, in a couple of weeks, his first episode of Charlie's Geekcast, which will be covering, well, all things geeky. Uh, He's got a promo for it, I think I played it on a couple of podcasts ago, looks like it's going to be a fun show, and I can't wait to listen to that as well. Also, Charlie's doing even more stuff, uh, working with uh, John Wilson and J. David Weider over at the New Adventures of or the New 52 Adventures of Superman, where they're going to be covering the uh, story arc that's going on in the New 52, uh, the L on Earth with the H uh, apostrophe el character. Don't know what's that what that's about, but um, I guess it's uh, Kryptonian who's going to cause L with uh, Superman, so should be interesting. Definitely check out New 52 Adventures of Superman as well. And I'm just plugging podcasts away. Let's get to the email. Uh, Charlie writes in uh, episode, uh, the title being episode 43. He writes in saying, so you mean to tell me that Guy is from Maryland and like the monkeys? Wow, I've got more in common with him than I thought. Never shared the same hairstyles, though. And what's wrong with the monkeys? They would have been popular again as he was a kid. Both repeat airings on MTV and Nickelodeon and their 20th anniversary even got their songs back on the charts. And it would have been a great way for him to escape from the horrors of the real world. Sorry they aren't as cool as Madonna or Nickelback. (sighs) Okay, yes, you got the dig in, Charlie. Uh, I'm hoping you're sending something over to uh, Mr. Bradley over at uh, Thrilling Adventures of Superman as well. Uh, Charlie continues on, yes, uh, also yes, Baltimore has a few drawbridges. I just happened to have gone over one of them the past couple of weeks ago. Fun times, Charlie. Well, I had no idea, Charlie, that you were a, or that you had lived in Maryland, and you had an idea of what it was like around the Baltimore area, so that's really cool. I may be hitting you up. Um, in fact, last episode, we covered uh, the third part of the, uh, Yesterday's story arc, and at the beginning of that, there was this diner that was very reminiscent of Arnold's diner from the 19 well from the Happy Days show, and I'm wondering if that may have been a uh, sort of landmark in or around Baltimore. And if you've got any idea about that, Charlie, I'd love to have you write in on that too. As for the monkeys thing, well, it's not that I dislike the monkeys; they're just they're a fun enough band, but they were definitely one of these progenitors of the well of the boy bands that we have. They were the 1960s version of the Backstreet Boys or what we have today, One Direction. I guess is the big one. Uh, these bands that were pretty much tailor-made to suit a niche and just to get uh, the uh, the girls of the time all excited about these cute little boys. The fact that I think, if I remember correctly, none of the uh, people of the band could actually play instruments, aside from I think of Mike Nesmith, kind of uh, led me to the idea that they were pretty much a manufactured band. But they were fun. Uh, it's just also that I feel that Guy doesn't really seem to be a monkeys type person. You know, I could see him being more of a Rolling Stones person, but. You never know. Everyone's taste varies. But thank you, Charlie, for writing in. I really appreciate that. Our next email comes in from the aforementioned Mr. Michael Bradley. Uh, it's titled, Just One of the Nords. Interesting. Uh, the email goes, Just wanted to give you a couple of bits of information regarding Nort, who came up in, issue, or in episode 43. I don't have any links to give, so forgive my slight misquotes, as they might have come out due to my, to holes in my memory from reading too many comics. Boy, do I know about that! Don't, don't feel bad about that, Michael. Um, he continues. I think Nort's last appearance was in the two-issue Guy Gardner collateral damage in miniseries from 2006. A couple of years later, Jeff Johns said that that the character wasn't dead, but officially designated as "quote unquote" missing in action. And you didn't just see me, thankfully using air quotes, because that's pretty silly. Unfortunately, more recently, he said that the character has been quote-unquote excised from continuity following the New 52, not a reboot. But he conceded that it would allow for a new take on his origin. Still, I wouldn't expect a Nort Reborn story anytime soon, even though we all know it would be awesome. Yes, it would, provided it wasn't drawn by Howard Jakin and written by him. I actually, uh went and tracked down the uh, Guy Gardner collateral damage book, and even though it stars my favorite character and Guy Gardner, it was not really a good story. I mean, they basically just reverted to the whole idea of Guy as an insensitive boar who can only solve things by beating the crap out of people. and The artwork on Nort was hideous. I mean, he... He reverted to the whole Chewbacca with, you know, Kelly Jones's, Kelly Jones's pointed ears. And by Kelly Jones's, I mean the Batman Kelly Jones. You know what I mean. But it was not really a good story, not really good artwork, and it's disappointing to see that Nord effectively went out like that. But uh, Michael continues on. He says, quote unquote, or he says, in parentheses, begin shameless pun. Plug. <laughs> Sorry. The good news is, we'll be looking at Nort's earliest appearances this spring, likely starting in episode, or episode 18 of Green Lantern's Light. So there's that, and shameless plug. Glad you got that plug in. Again, uh, if you're not listening to either of Mr. Bradley's shows, uh, Green Lantern's Light or The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, you're doing yourself a disservice, as both of them are just really fun shows to listen to. Go check them out. But that finishes up email for this time out, just a couple ones. And again, I thank everyone for writing in. Uh, if you want to write in or if you want to read, uh, leave iTunes reviews, you can go do that. If you leave an iTunes review in another country, if you're listening in anywhere outside of the United States, uh, give me just a quick email at justoneoftheguyspodcasts at gmail.com, and I'll make sure and I read that uh, review on the air. But uh, with all that out of the way, let's go ahead and start our coverage of the Trinity storyline, which is going to be starting up with Green Lantern number forty five. Green Lantern number forty five had a cover date of no uh, sorry, September nineteen ninety three with a release date on july twentieth of nineteen ninety three. Cover price was a dollar US, dollar sixty Canada and seventy P UK. Title was Turf War, the writer was Gerard Jones, penciler was Gene Haw, anchor Romeo Tangal, letterer Albert Guzman, colorist Anthony Tolan, assistant editor Eddie Briganza, and editor Kevin Dooley. Leading in directly from the Dark Stars book, we see the Green Lantern Corps engaging the Dark Stars in the predictable Fighting Feitenstein, copyright Andrew in 2011, all rights reserved. HAL orders some of the Corps to take on the Triarch, and Boudicca, Creon, and Larvox head out to attack the giant gods. ah uh-huh. ah former member of the Green Lantern Corps and the current Darkstar, chases after the trio of Corps members, but Darkstar Prawn wants her nearby for her experience with the Green Lanterns. Hal wonders why ah has changed sides and she tells him that the controllers allow the Darkstars more autonomy, plus the ability to blast Green Lanterns in the face with yellow energy. Unfortunately, the same is happening to a lot of the Corps, as the Darkstars take more of them down. Meanwhile, the Triarch of Korra, Sodar, and Angkor are raising and renewing the surface of Malthus as the citizens look on, some with hope, others with fear. But the citizens are getting irate at the Legion forces that are still attacking the gods. But Legion leader, Vril Dox, doesn't care about that as he approaches the mysterious chamber he discovered in the Legion issue. Pulling a cable, the chamber opens to reveal a bearded 11th Doctor who calls for Amelia Pond. upon... Wait, no, that's a whole different story. Before the true resident of the Ancient Chamber can be revealed, Dox gets a call that the Green Lanterns and Darkstars are approaching the Triarch. Screaming that they can't ruin his plan, Dox orders the Legion members fighting the Triarch to return their attention to their new opponents. Back on Earth, Carol Ferris calls Clay Kendall, saying that she'll take the consulting job at Ferris Aircraft. Clay is delighted but the call is interrupted by a strange noise, and then the building he was in getting blown up real good. Shocked, Carol jumps into her car to head to Coast City to try and find out what's going on. As she leaves, she zips past Tom Kalmaku, who decides to follow Carol in hopes of finding out what the hell is going on with the mysterious Croftswind Corporation. Tom follows Carol up the coast, but before he can make a call to the authorities some strange cord wraps around his neck, causing Tim to run his truck off the road. Waking up from the crash, another cord wraps around his neck, pulling him into the air, and into the custody of Flicker. Back on Maltus, the McFightenstein continues as Hal gets zapped down by a Dark Star. Pulling himself off the ground, Hal sees a member of the Legion, who gives Hal a message from v- Vril Docs, saying that the controllers are coming to aid the Dark Stars. Hal tells the alien to go give a message of off being the direction Dox can go f- but the messenger has disappeared. At the same time, the message of the Guardians coming to aid the Green Lanterns is given to Darkstar Brawn. Smalling a trap, Braun and the Darkstars head after the Lanterns, only to be caught in a trap and knocked out. Elsewhere, Boudica, Larvox, and Creon are handling the Legion members, until Lobo confronts the Emerald Anza. The two tussle, exchange insults, and then finally realize that they'd rather boink than brawl. While the unholy union goes on, the rest of the lanterns attack the Triarch, as Vril Dox finally speaks with the controller who is in the stasis chamber, With a smile on his face, Dox seems to have the upper hand, as not only does he have the creator of the Triarch in his control, but he also has called in Legion attack ships. All of them, painted yellow. Okay, we get another issue, we get more fighting, more double crossing, more backstabbing, and more Lobo and Boudicca coupling. Well, most of those things are really exciting, and then there's one that's just incredibly horrific. But as I desperately try and tamp down the, uh, pizza that I had for lunch, let's go ahead and, uh, get to the, uh, coverage of this issue. Starting with the cover, which is, a. Uh, Interesting cover by Gene Hav, having the Green Lanterns with Hal Jordan in the foreground and Kilowog behind him, fighting, I guess, Darkstar Braun and Colin Farrell, uh, Farron Kolos in the, I'm going to use a word from the Fire and Water podcast, Surprint there, with uh, Lobo and Boudica in the foreground, and it's a dynamic cover, it's a big grimacing match, and also you're going to kind of wonder, knowing what we know about what, Lobo and Boudicca are doing later in the book if there might not be something a bit more, well, graphic going on off-panel. I'll just let your mind wander there. Page 3. This was an interesting little thing that I didn't remember from this storyline. Ah-Ah, the character who was another rock being, much like Brick in the Green Lantern Corps, was recruited uh, by Brick to be a lantern in the storyline that covered uh, how going to rescue Carol Ferris as Star Sapphire. Well, Ah got disillusioned with the Green Lantern Corps and decided to go away. It's interesting that he decided to join the Dark Stars, and I didn't know that he was a part of this team. And we get to see him fighting with the Dark Stars right now. So it's interesting that they that the character just didn't get dropped and nothing done with him, or her. It it's weird the, the character doesn't look feminine but, it's distinguishes her so I I don't get it. Rock creatures, puzzle me. Uh, moving on uh, to page nine, we also get back to the secondary story arc in uh, Green Lantern, the one dealing with the Crosswind Corporation and Carol being secretive and everything, and it's a really good. Uh, it's uh, like I said before, it's really good that Gerard Jones is keeping on with this. But it feels weird that he has to sort of shoehorn this into this big crossover event. Uh, Plus, we also get something that's going to play a big part in Green Lantern's history with this weird uh, explosion happening. We really don't know what's going on unless we're reading uh, some other titles in the DC Universe. Some ones that were having a crossover event of their own. Then on page 11, panel 4, oh goody, it's the return of the Firestorm wannabe in Elizabethan costume, Flicker. Well, him and his big flaming head and his bullwhip have decided to come back into the uh, Green Lantern universe, and man, I thought his uniform and those issues that I think Broderick was drawing, yeah, it was Pat Broderick, I thought his uniform and those issues was pretty goofy, This one even tops that, so... Flicker, he's back. Hooray! Pages 12 and 13, Gene Ha does a really good job with detailed artwork. He's got a lot of lanterns on here. I'm seeing, oh, the little imp lantern from the Ganteth's Tale here, carrying Brick. We've got Lawn and Kilowog and Hal all fighting in the Dark Stars, and members of the Dark Stars team fighting against the Lanterns. Plus Gene Haw does a great version of Nortier over in the uh, far left corner. It's it's a really nice splash, two-page splash, and uh, they've got some really good artists on this book, so art artwork is not a problem with this storyline. Pages 14 and 15. Now, the character is never mentioned, and I really don't know who it is, but it's this big green kind of looks like the leader from the, uh, Hulk, from the Hulk series over in Marvel Comics uh, is communicating with both Hal Jordan of the Green Lanterns and Braun of the Dark Stars, telling them separately that the other protagonists' leaders, the Guardians and the Controllers, are both coming to help out the respective groups. So, basically, they're pitting these groups against each other, and it's Vril Dox's plan to kind of get the two agitated against each other. It's really a inventive storyline from the Legion story, and I'm getting the sense that Mark Wade had a really good grasp on the character of Vril Dox and was really making him a very intelligent and conniving and clever character. Uh out of all the books in this Trinity story arc, the one that really has the most brains in it is the Legion book. And I think it basically comes from the character of Vril Drox, or Vril Dox, these alien names, they're hard to pronounce, that is really a conniving, manipulative, kind of a jerk, but he has things planned out very intelligent, and it's it's a book that I may have to start looking into. Then on page 19, panel 6, we get the finale of what happens between Boudicca and Lobo as they're beating the living crap out of each other, and Boudicca trashes Lobo's bike, and they're pounding on each other and trading insults, and eventually it comes to this panel where they're both in silhouette with Lobo with his horrendously long tongue sticking out, and Both of them grinning. And there's these images of little Cupid-like angels just around the panel to make it look sort of romantic, except the angels themselves are vomiting. Because they know that Lobo and Boudicca are going to engage in some horrible Fifty Shades of Grey type sex acts. Ugh. And finally for the issue, maybe I spoke too soon about uh, Vril Dox being intelligent, because even though he decided to paint all the attacking Legion ships yellow, this is perhaps the lamest thing that he could have done. I mean, yeah, I guess he's exploiting the Green Lantern's weakness, but it's a really lame way to exploit it. But that ends the Green Lantern issue, but we're not finished yet. We still have three more issues to cover, starting with the next issue in the Trinity story arc, Legion 93. Which was Legion 93, number 58, cover dated September 1993 with a release date on July 27, 1993. This cover price was $1.75 US, $1.25 Canada, and $1.25 UK. The title was Split Decision. The co-plot and script was by Mark Wade, and the co-plot was by Barry Kitson. Pencils were by Stephen Jones and Chris Hunter. The anchors were Robert Smith, Peter Gross, and John Dell. The colorist was Jean D'Angelo, and the letterer was Galbert, or Gaspar Saldino. Assistant editor was Peter Tomasi, and editor was Dan Raspler. Fleeing from the Legion ships, the Green Lanterns and the Dark Stars continue their strike on the Triarch as the Legion forces and the recruits, I guess some sort of Legion wannabes, try and keep them occupied. We cut to a scene of a Legion member interrupting Lobo and Boudicca's quote-unquote alone time, and thankfully cut quickly away to the three forces fighting each other while the Triarch raids the planet. Back in the Science Cave, Vril and the Awakened Controller give the backstory on the ancient prophecy of the trio of Gods who destroy Maltus and build it anew. It seems that the Controller actually created these beings to fulfill the prophecy, and that they're doing a bang-up job of it. Back at the fight, Hal gets with Captain Comet and has him telepathically contact all the forces in order to call a truce and take the fights to the gods as one group. Legion, the Lanterns, and the Dark Stars all attack on masse, but the Triarch are unaffected as they combine their energies in one Super King Kamehameha attack and knock out the group and kill thousands of Malthusians in the blast. And I don't really have any notes for this issue except for one note for page 6 panel 6 which is essentially the scene where Lobo exits the uh, little space shuttle cruiser thing that he and Boudicca were occupying, trusting nothing but Boudica's underpants little skimpy, bikini brief Green Lantern underpants. It's an image that hopefully you won't have to take a look at because I won't be able to scrub it from my mind anytime soon. But that leads us directly into Dark Stars number 12 which was cover dated September 1993 with a release date on August 3rd, 1993. It had a cover price of $1.75 U.S., $1.25 Canada, and £1.25 U.K. This title was Aftershock, and the writer was Michael Jan Friedman, the penciler was Mitch Byrd, the inker was Ken Branch, letterer was Robert Robert Panaha, colorist was Steve Attson, blinded by the light, I don't know, Ruben Diaz, and new enough to keep his eyes closed, Brian Augustine. Waking from the Supra-Ultra-Mega-Neo-Dragon Sword attack, the Collected Heroes look upon the devastation that the Triarch has wrought. Saying to hell with the Controllers and the Guardians, Darkstar Colin Farrell and Darkstar's Baron Colos prepares to give his patent speech, but is rudely interrupted by Vril Dox and the Awakened Controller. They tell the Assembled that the so-called Gods were actually created by the Controller, and therefore they can be destroyed. And with that, the heroes begin the fighting again, hoping to take down Korra. Some Legion members announce to the Triarch that they are not gods, and to search their feelings. You'll know it to be true. Unfortunately, this doesn't lead the beings to jump to their supposed death from a platform in Cloud City, all the while screaming, No! But it leads them to renew their path of destruction. Hal, Faron and Docs question the Controller about what to do. And in a twist that everyone should have seen coming, the controller goes mad and flies off to meet up with his creations, but not without blasting Hal and Farron first. Hal and Farron recover and chide Doc's for not foreseeing this outcome, before heading out after the controller. But they arrive too late, as he's met with his creations, and has told them to finish their holy work. And again, my notes here for this issue are pretty minimal. Uh, Pages 4 and 5, there's some pretty graphic violence, again, for this period of time in the book, as Korra is using her powers of creativity, or not creativity, her powers of creation, to grow trees and vines and whatever from the earth, which, unfortunately, is growing where the people of Malthus are and basically smothering them or crushing them. It, again, is another example of the artist being able to do something that essentially is pretty violent, but not do it in a graphic or gory way. They get the point across in just general shading of the characters and minimalist tactics to show that these horrific things are going on. So, kudos to the artist here. But this will lead us into the final chapter of the Trinity story arc, which is DC Universe Trinity No. 2. It was cover dated September 1993, again like the rest of the books, released on August 10th of 1993. Cover price was a whopping $2.95 US, $3.95 Canada, and £2 in the UK. The title was Reunion. Plotter was Michael Jan Friedman, with scripters Mark Wade and Gerard Jones. Pencilers this time were Barry Kitson and Chris Hunter, anchors Dan Davis, Dennis Kramer, and Frank Percy. Letterer was Albert Guzman, colorist was Stuart Schaffetz, assistant editor Eddie Braganza, and editor Kevin Dooley. Having just come to the realization that they are completely boned, the combined forces of the Green Lantern Corps, the Dark Star, and Legion decide, again, that they must set aside their differences and take out these foes and their new master. Super Jumbo Epic McFightenstein goes on against the Giant Gods until Hal and Farron come up with a plan to let the Triarch finish their work, as the heroes all take on the Controller. The ensemble blast away at the power harling Re Controller as Vril Dox makes a couple of urgent calls to some people that he's sure can help. Away from the battle, the Trier can finally stop their path of destruction, and now stand silent, awaiting their father's judgement. Cutting back to Dox, it appears that the help he has called in are the heads of the Dark Stars, the Controllers, and the heads of the Green Lantern Corps, the Guardians of the Universe. Needless to say, the two organizations are unwilling to believe that the Triart aren't actual Malthusian gods. They're also unwilling to work with each other in order to stop the destruction. Dox cleverly calls their bluff by asking one of the groups to leave, so that he may begin making plans to work with the other, which of course causes the two displaced Malthusian groups to begin cooperating. There's another quick interlude dealing with Lobo and Boudicca. And then it's back to the battle, as the forces press even harder against the Mad Controller. Finally, the Controller has had enough of their s*** sh- super-blast our heroes, and calls for the Triarch to come to him. But, without their creator's direction, Zodar, Arkor, and Quora finally see what they have done, and that it's not been fulfilling the ancient prophecy, but causing untold death and destruction. And at this point, the floaty heads of the Guardians and the Controllers appear and tell the Triarch the truth about their origin. Enraged by the deception, the three gods lay into the mad controller and prepare to destroy him, until Hal Jordan intervenes, telling them that they've done enough killing. Realizing that he's right, the Triarch expend all their energy blowing up real good, and somehow turning Malthus from an overcrowded cesspool into a lush, verdant paradise. And with crisis verdant, the three groups go their separate ways, Doc smugly tells Hal and Farron that it was all a part of his plan to release the mad controller. ah makes peace with Hal. Brick and Strata, a member of the Legion group, find a weird sisterly bond. The Dark Stars welcome back Colin Farrell. And Lobo and Boudica make plans for another epic bout of getting their freak on. And at the final meeting, the Guardians, Controllers, and Legion come to agreement on how each group can work together in this great big ball of mostly emptiness. The end. You know, for a crossover event that only stayed in its actual books, rather than spilling out into the entire DC universe, and dealing with uh, groups of comics that I'm really not uh, associated with, or really didn't have all that much knowledge of, I really enjoyed this crossover. Uh It kept the books, like I said. It introduced some interesting characters. It engaged me in the uh, characters in the books. It was really, I think, the way you should do a crossover. And it made sense. You've got, of course, the Controllers and the Guardians in the Universe, which are both Offshoots of the Malthusians that went on to sort of police the galaxy with their own different uh, police cop groups. And then you've got Legion, which is just basically a sort of, well, it's more of a security firm. They work more on the basis of hiring them rather than the sort of uh, defense force like a, a police force would be. It's more of a private security agency. So it's interesting they brought these together and. It was an interesting story. Sadly, it's just kind of overlooked. When you look at modern comics, the Dark Stars and Legion really aren't... Well, they're not in the forefront that much. Green Lantern still is, because Jeff Johns and the current writers up there have a big thing for Green Lantern, and in the comics, I guess it's selling really well. But unfortunately, Legion and Dark Stars have been completely ignored. The only negative thing that I could actually say about the book, and well, I guess I could nitpick a lot of things, especially the fact that they had to shoehorn in the sex, not really sex scenes, but the idea that Lobo and Boudicca were getting it on throughout the entire book. Um, The one thing that I didn't really like was the end product of it was to renew Maltus And the way they kind of went about doing that was by mass genocide. I mean, the Triarch essentially destroyed millions of people and well, maybe not millions of people, but a lot of people and a lot of property in order to sort of transform Maltus into this lush, green, uh, clean paradise. And It seems like a sort of ham-fisted way to get a sort of inconvenient truth-type storyline going there. Um, I'm not thinking that they were working for a zero-population growth thing, but uh, it just seems like that's what they were going for. uh, Saying that, in the end, what we wanted to do with Maltus was kill a lot of people off so that the planet would be better. I mean, maybe I'm looking at the storyline a little differently, but... That's the only negative I can say about this. Art wise, story wise, character wise, really good story. So, if you can find them, I'm pretty certain these books are probably not going for the prices that they were originally posted by. If you look at conventions or such, you can probably find them in dollar or 50 cent bins. I would say they're well worth your time and effort. But that finishes the coverage of DC Trinity. I'm going to take a break here and plug some promos in for some podcasts that you should be listening to and when we come back we'll start in on part four of the Yesterday's Sins storyline. Stay tuned.
1: Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero Superman, Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend. Featuring... The
0: Thrilling Adventures of Superman.
1: Golden Age
0: Superman. The Superman Fan Podcast. Superman in the Bronze Age. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. The New 52 Adventures of Superman. Superman Forever Radio. I've got a few things to say about Superman. The care of the podcast. The Superman Vidcast. The World's Best Podcast.
1: And... Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com
0: Join hosts Michael Bradley John Wilson Billy Hogan Charlie Niemeyer
1: Jay David Weeder,
0: Jeffrey Taylor Michael Bailey Scott Gardner Danny Sapp Cameron Stoll
1: I'm Isaac I'm Adam Dave Eunice and co-host Scotty V at supermanpodcastnetwork.com My name is Steve Lacey and I'm a podcaster. The randomizer hit my long boxes and now I'm lost in my comic book collection. Help me. Help me. Listen, please. Is there anybody out there who can hear me? I'm being controlled by an overbearing and fickle randomizer. I'm doing everything I can to review this book in the next 20 minutes. This is the 20 minute long box. The 20-Minute Long Box is the briefest and most random of comic book podcasts. Every two weeks, a completely random comic book from my collection is the subject of the show. Find me at the show's site, 20 the show's blog at 20minutelongbox.wordpress.com, or search for 20-Minute Long Box on iTunes. Prepare yourself for random.
0: And we're back. Uh, We've got a little uh, Stephen Lacey voicing some podcasts there. Nice. Uh, If you're not listening to uh, either 20-Minute Long Box or uh, Stephen Lacey's other podcast, The Fantasticast with uh, Andrew Leyland of Hey Kids Comics, definitely go check them out. Good shows. But now it's time to get to the final part of the Guy Gardner Yesterday Send storyline with Guy Gardner number 14, which was cover dated November of 1993 with a release date on October 5th, 1993. Cover price again was dollar twenty five U.S. dollar sixty Canada and seventy p U.K. Title this time out was Guys and Drawls. D R A A L S. Yes. Writer was Chuck Dixon, penciler Joe Staten, anchor Terry Beatty, letterer Albert Guzman, colorist Anthony Tolan, assistant editor Eddie Braganza, and editor Kevin Dooley. That guy Gardner is one bad mother. Shut your mouth. Hey, I was only talking about guy. We can dig it. However, this complicated man that no one understands but his woman is not the real Guy Gardner, but the fake one that the drawl have created for their own nefarious purposes. Oh, and he's armed with the real Guy's yellow power ring as well. This might be a problem for the real Guy and the escaping lanterns, until Guy hears a familiar Kuragurian phrase emanate from the ring, a phrase that means that the ring is out of power. Pressing his advantage, real Guy socks his clone in the kisser, knocking him back. Real Guy lands punch after punch, but in his seal to drop his duplicate, the drawl zap our hero and take him off for some more probemic Probenstein. Cut to the hospital room, where Mace Gardner lies in critical condition, a gunshot from a drug dealer almost taking his life. What's even more surreal about this scene is Raleigh Gardner, kneeling by his son's bedside, openly weeping as Guy looks on. Guy talks to Mace's doctor about his injuries, and the doctor's prognosis isn't good. Mace took five gunshot wounds from a high-caliber handgun, and is in a coma. The doctor says that if he does come out of the coma within 48 hours, he might have a fighting chance. As the doctor leaves, he tells Guy to be strong for his family, and Guy ponders how he could live in the shadow of a hero or a martyr. But before he can think too hard about that, two dark-suited police officers walk into the room. Raleigh curses at the cops, saying that if it wasn't for their inaction, his son wouldn't be like this. The officers rebuke Raleigh, saying that they are from internal affairs, and that this wasn't in the line of duty. Mace was shaking down some low-level drug peddlers, taking a grand week off them, and they finally had enough of it, and plugged him full of bullets when he tried to collect. A stunned Raleigh says that that can't be true. But Guy sees the anguish in his face, says that he did. The officers say that there won't be any press about it, but if Mace makes it out of the hospital, it won't be as a cop. Trying to comfort his grieving father, Guy reaches out to touch him, but stops at the last moment, not certain what would happen if he did. Time passed, and Mace eventually made it out of the hospital. However, a bullet severed his spine, leaving him paralyzed from the waist down. The doctor said that it must have taken a hell of a lot of effort, for him to make it down to the riverside in a wheelchair. If only Mace had put that much effort into living. Guy's father gave up on living as well, but he just threw himself into a bottle and never came out. Guy's mom was always there for Raleigh, making sure they had got enough vitamin C in his diet, and Guy... Oh, Guy just got out. Fast forward in Guy's life, as he graduates from college and gets a job teaching sports to disabled kids as well as counseling prisoners. Then one fateful day on a road trip to California, Guy is rescued from an earthquake by Green Lantern. He eventually becomes Hal's replacement, gets trapped in the Phantom Zone, alternate universe, and comes back, only to be in a coma-like state. When he wakes, he's given the ring again, and the rest is history. Legends, the JLI, losing the Ring of the Hau, and the gaining of the Ring of Sinestro. Guy awakens on the Drawl ship, hurting both physically and emotionally. The Xanaglaff that was attached to him is dead now, and no one else is around. Guy stumbles forward and runs into Voz. The Wookiee-like GL says that they've been fighting the Drawl and winning, but that the Drawl found a way to recharge Guy's ring, and they're about to send the Duplicate to Earth. Guy grabs a gun and fires at it at the evil clone, but it's too late as the pseudo-guy blasts off for earth. Graftorin and Bivix congratulate Guy on finishing off the last of the drawl, but Guy says he's got bigger problems. As the group heads to earth, Guy wonders what he's going to do about getting his ring back. And even more, he wonders what he's going to say to his dad. Okay, I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again. Just, wow. It's an incredible book. Uh, This story could have only been told in such a manner by such an incredible author, or an incredible writer like Chuck Dixon. He really gave a level of pathos and nobility to a character that could have easily been written off as a simple-minded brawler. And it really irks me so much when I read certain comics some modern comics, and seem portrayed as such. Also, Joe Staton does some amazing work within the panels here. Terry Beatty and Anthony Tolan round out an all-star team that, in, in my estimation, has defined the character of Guy Gardner. In my estimation, no other stories about this guy will ever compare. Unfortunately, for the Guy Gardner comic, this is the last issue that Joe Staten is going to be drawing. So, After this, we're going to be moving to a couple of you know, uh, fill-in artists. And then after that, we'll be uh, going on with Dan Davis and Mitch Bird. They bring a very interesting dynamic to the comic, but again, Staten will always be the person that I believe, that when I envisioned Guy Gardner in my mind, he will be the person who's drawing him. But uh, let's go ahead and head on to notes for this. Uh, My notes are pretty sparse. It usually happens with good issues. I really don't have all that much to talk about. Cover is the same sort of cover that we've had for the past couple of times. Uh, It's a little cut off on the left-hand side, and you're missing a bit of Guy's boot. But it's the same setup as the previous issues. This time, the uh, 1-8th stripe, instead of being green, it's yellow. And it has Guy in his current hero outfit. And the rest of the cover has Guy and the Lanterns fighting their way out of the ship. Now, it is kind of odd on the cover that Guy is actually in his leather uniform jacket. He's wearing his Guy Gardner uniform, while throughout the entire book he's just basically been in his t-shirt and his pants. So, it's kind of odd to see him on the cover with his, his leather jacket with the Gardner symbol on it page 4, panel 1, we get a bit of difference in the language that Guy's Ring is giving off. Uh, The last few times, it was English uh, language. It was the basic American well, basic English uh, alphabet, but the words were just in a weird sort of alien language. This time it's a weird symbology. Um, I don't know whether it's necessarily one made up for this book, and Unfortunately, I'm not one of those Futurama guys who's able to translate these alien languages, so we'll just kind of have to guess that it's saying the same thing. I thought it was just kind of different that they moved to an actual symbol language rather than just uh, English with uh, weird alien words. Page 5, panel 3. As Guy's punching the clone out, he calls the uh, clone Bro. and I found it kind of, well, maybe not ironic, but kind of prescient how that statement actually is, because eventually, later on in the series, this clone will take on the name of Joe Gardner and continue to fight Guy, and basically Joe will become, for all intents and purposes, Guy's brother. So, interesting little foreshadowing, or maybe just the fact that Guy likes to use the word bro page 8, we get a really nice splash page of Mace in the hospital, laying on the bed with Raleigh holding his hand and kneeling by the bedside. It's got this sort of weird ethereal feel with Guy in the foreground. Uh, You're looking at him from the back, and he's all sort of blue. It looks like... It looks very ethereal. It looks like he's looking into into sort of one of these near-death experiences, or it's one of these heavenly type images. Uh, there's a lot of speed lines going off of it, and it's everything is kind of speed-lined out, except for the characters of Mace, Raleigh, and the Doctor who are looking at him. It's a really great piece of artwork. Uh, gives you this otherworldly feel that separates Guy from the reality that's going on here. Pages ten and eleven. Here's where the book really hits its high mark. You've got the uh, you got the story that Mace was actually dealing with drug dealers and he was on the take and the look on Raleigh's face is one of those of complete disbelief but complete acceptance of yeah that's what was going on and the next page has this panel of it's the same sort of shot of the blues and purples and you get Mace sitting in a wheelchair in his room and he looks very dejected. The next panel, is just a wheelchair that's made its way to the dock, and the wheelchair is sitting in the water, and Mace is nowhere to be seen. Uh, it's a very powerful, very simple image that conveys, obviously, the point uh, that Mace gave up on life. He decided to take his own life and ended this way. The next couple of panels are dealt with Raleigh, who's getting worse and worse. He's looking unkempt and unshaven. He's gained a lot of weight and he's just drinking straight vodka and not even caring. The next panel has uh, his mom or Guy's mom mixing up orange juice to mix with uh, Raleigh's drinks so that at least he's, even though he's drinking himself to death, he's getting vitamin C. He's Supposedly, she's trying to help him by giving him some sort of Nutrition with his alcohol. It's just another enabling factor for Guy's mom. And the final panel, we see Guy, oddly enough, in a leather jacket, much like what he's wearing in his hero uniform, his current hero uniform, getting in a taxi and getting out of there. Pages 12 and 13 are kind of nice. It's essentially what we got to cover, or what I got to cover in the Secret Origins story, number 7. I did that over on Green Lantern's Light, uh, episode 13. Go check that out if you want to listen to it. One of the interesting things, though, is on page 12, panel 3, Guy mentions that he was dealing with special education kids when he was teaching them sports. Uh, In the uh, Secret Origins story, they didn't really mention that, but here it looks like the special education kids aren't necessarily people that are mentally challenged, it's more people that are physically disabled. It looks like we've got a kid who might have polio because he's on those crutches. And just the fact that Guy is working specifically with mentally disabled or handicapped kids in general speaks to him as a character. Uh, It's something that people may not even know about him. And when you do know this about him, I think it fleshes him out and makes him makes him more of a hero. Page 14, panel 1. I'm not certain if this is con- is in continuity, and I actually went back and looked at the uh, Secret Origins issue, and it's not mentioned there. But the doctor here, taking care of Guy while he's in a coma, has the tag of Dr. Bentley, which, oddly enough, was the doctor that we dealt with, oh, a couple of issues back in Green Lantern, who was taking care of Olivia Reynolds. It was also the doctor that Tom Kalmaku approached and said he was the one that traveled with uh, Hal to the antimatter universe of Gord. I think it was in issue 43, the the one with Itty. The big, giant, plant space spore thingy. Yeah, I'm trying to forget that one as well. Page 20, panel 3. I'm only mentioning this because it amused me in the book. Guy used the word peachy here. And I know it could probably just be chalked up to a simple throwaway line, but eventually, later on in the Guy Gardner story, uh, it'll become a catchphrase in one of the issues. I think it's uh, an issue of Guy Gardner Warrior that's actually drawn by the awesome artist of Mike Paraback. And what's going on in the issue is Guy is being sold a Guy Gardner Warrior television series, or cartoon series, that is supposed to be depicting his life and it the artwork uh is contrasted from uh burden davis's artwork to parabak's artwork in the comic or in not in the comic but in the cartoon and some of the lines that guy uses in there is uh, one of his catchphrases is peachy so i just kind of found it kind of amusing that they may have laid the seeds for that here so kind of fun uh probably not the case but I just caught that and thought it was amusing but that uh, ends my uh, coverage for uh, Guy Gardner number 14 I mean what more can I say I, I love this story and I hope I did it justice for you guys um, just for a minute I'm going to take out a moment and kind of be a in- bit introspective um, I'm thinking one of the reasons specifically why I enjoyed this issue is because, in some way, I've had to deal with some of the things that Guy dealt with. Now I didn't have an abusive father, but I did have a father that had a problem with alcoholism. He drank uh, quite a bit, uh, eventually leading to to his early demise. Um, I had known about it, you know, since high school, since the uh, since long before these issues came out, and. I knew that he had this problem, and I knew that he was doing this to himself, and I don't know if that's one of the reasons why this book connected with me, that I saw something in the character of Raleigh that I saw in my father. I mean, not the abusiveness, because my dad was never abusive. Uh, He was never a mean drunk, he was never a person who would get angry, or hit me, or hit any member of my family. But he did let the uh, he did let the booze get to him so much that, you know, it eventually just shut down his system. Uh, uh, looking back at it, I'm I'm wondering if again, that's one of the reasons why I hold this uh, book in such high regard. Um, I'm hoping that's not the case. I'm hoping it's the strength of the writing and the strength of the artwork. But looking back at it now, you know, uh, with the uh, passing of my father just a about five years ago. Kind of wonder if that might have a little bit to do with it. Uh, But I'm going to to try and bring this around to uh, a happier place uh, where I'm going to try and look at the, the wonderful ads that they had for this. Hopefully my chemical romance doesn't have any ads in this comic. However, they do have something just as depressing on the uh, front inside cover. It's where bloodlines end, bloodbath, heroes, parasites, new blood carnage begins. And, and we've got an interesting sort of white inked or white background with just ink covers, and uh, I guess they're dealing with all the uh, wrap-up of bloodlines. So it's a two-part thing that came out in October from DC. Comics bloodbath. Hopefully, the uh, the whole Bloodline story will be just a faded memory here soon. A few pages in, we get the ad, Eat, Sleep, Bust a Few Heads, with a bunch of ridiculous characters in World Heroes. World Heroes was essentially SNK's uh, version of Street Fighter, and they didn't have the iconic characters of Ken and Ryu and E-Honda, and Blanca that the uh, Street Fighter franchise did, they had really horrible analogs of them. Uh, we've got a sort of Hulk Hogan-type character, a, a Ryu character who's in blue. We've got an M. Bison-looking character with a big sort of sonic disruptor where his right hand should be. We've got shirtless mullet guy, and we've got a wizard... Or I guess it's a wizard. It's some long-haired, bearded Gandalf wannabe who's got yellow energy emanating from his hands. Uh, SNK World Heroes. Not the best. You know, your money is probably best spent on buying Street Fighter or Mortal Kombat. Next page, we get the same ad for uh, Batman Skyfall, or, sorry, Batman Nightfall Skycaps, which were the POGs for the, uh, epic Batman story of Nightfall and how better to uh, celebrate the epicness of the breaking of the bat by having little brown pieces of plastic that you would trade with your friends a few more pages in we get the uh, DC Bloodlines trading cards I'm certain those are going for big money on the uh, internet Uh, I bet eBay's just loaded with those and they're going for hundreds of dollars each Next page is the E.T.M. Uh, comics. Uh, no really, really hot comics. They've got mega hits of the Batman animated trade. Uh, Ninjax, Sin City, a dame to kill for. Um, nothing really out of the ordinary. It looks like prices are coming down and uh, we're still getting the Valiant specials and the uh, Ultraverse is coming to uh, play now. And the big uh, ad, or the big uh, artwork for the ETM is, of course, 90s icon Lobo. Can't get enough of Lobo. In the middle of the book, we get a couple ads for some DC comics, one of which I completely forgot was ever published. Imagine the complete and total destruction of the planet Earth, and the fun doesn't have to stop there. It's the DC adaptation of Douglas Adams' The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, adapted by John Carnell and Steve Leoloa, and it was authorized, approved, and enjoyed, supposedly, by Douglas Adams. So, this is kind of interesting. I've never read this. I'm a big Hitchhikers fan, and I'm going to have to try and seek this out in the uh, back issue bins. The next page has an awesome... Oh, who is that? The, uh, the initials for the artwork are S.H., so I'm going to take it. at Scott Hanna, his darkest tragedy, his greatest triumph, his rite of passage, Robin, Tragedy and Triumph, and which collects the storylines of Rite, Rite of Passage and The Joker's Wild. If you're wanting a little bit extra on the characters of Robin, definitely go check out, and I've just been listening to it, I'm really enjoying it, Tom pan show show uh, of Taking Flight. The episodes are really short and really succinct, and Tom does a great job of developing the character of Robin from his Early issues, along with Batman, up to his Teen Titan run, and just recently he's been covering—he uh, covered Death in the Family, and now he's covering a Lonely Place of Dying. Really good stuff from Tom Pan-Reese. Check it out, definitely. A few more pages in, we get a house ad for DC Comics. When Catwoman comes to your house, you get more than you bargained for. And uh, I think the thing that you get more that you bargain for are two giant orbs drawn by Jim I Like Boobs Ballant, as you get these sort of ripped up, overly cleavaged costume of Catwoman, and her book runs for a mere eighteen dollars for a one-year subscription. So if you want plenty of Jim Ballant boobs, go sh- go shell out your eighteen bucks for this. Those are some Ridiculously large breasts. The uh, DC Universe page uh, has the typical DC bullets, which tells uh, what's going on with the people in the uh, DC Universe. we have got a picture of Metamorpho drawn by Graham Nolan. Nice artwork there. But the one thing they do is put out a checklist of the Bloodlines characters, and they ask who is your favorite Bloodlines character, and they've got all of them. So just to let you know how lame all these characters are, I'm going to go ahead and read through them and tell you where they appeared. We've got Layla, a tough as space explorer, who appeared in Lobo. Edge, the blade-hurling community hero from the Man of Steel issue. Joe Public, the strength-siphoning patriot, who appeared in Shadow of the Bat. Argus, the shadow-melding undercover agent, who appear- appeared in The Flash. Anima, who actually got her own title, the Anima-Summoning Grunge Rocker. Oh, the 90s. Who appeared in New Titans. Myriad, the personality-absorbing assassin who appeared in Superman. Nightblade, the regenerating martial artist that appeared in Green Lantern. Ballistic, the armored and dangerous vigilante in Batman. Armed and dangerous, well... Lionheart, the armored high-tech knight, Lord, and JLI, Razor Sharp, the sword-armed hacker, Robin, Loose Cannon, the super-strong ex-cop that appeared in Action Comics, Jam with two M's, oh god, the prodigious surfer dude who appeared in Legions of Superheroes. Hook, the hook-handed former soldier, oh, <laughs> who appeared in Green Arrow. Geist, the uh, ghostly night hero that appeared in Detective Comets. Terror Smith, the monster-making villain, and it's got a question mark behind that, in JLA. How is that different from JLA? Oh, well, never mind. Sparks, the lightning-wielding hero in Adventures of Superman mongrel, the dark force blasting rebel in Hawkman gunfire, the high high tech renegade in Deathstroke prism, the light manipulating scientist in Eclipso hitman, the name says it all, and you can tell it's dynamic because says is spelled S-E-Z nice in the demon cardinal sin oh lord A disillusioned priest that appeared in Legends of the Dark Knight. Oh, it's hurting. Chimera, the illusion-creating hero in Team Titans, and Pax, the last of his race, and a space shaman who appeared in Legion 93. And you're supposed to check mark the box of who is your favorite Bloodlines hero, and even though you probably shouldn't write in your comic book, I don't think anyone would object any of these characters. Oh, God. Uh, Anima got her own series. Anima. T Anima Summoning Grunge Rocker. Oh, thank you, 1990s. Thank you for giving us humor that no other decade could. The yeah, Guy Talk page has a nice little farewell letter written by Kevin Dooley to uh, Joe Staten. Uh, tells about how he was a consummate artist. He always turned in stuff on time, was just a really great person to work with. And I, The Guy Gardner series is going to miss the uh, penciling of Joe Staten, but I think things are going to turn around here in a few when we get to the uh, Mitch Bird and Dan Davis. I really like those. It's not Staten, it's a different take on the character, but it's fun artwork nonetheless. The back inside cover has a really nice piece of artwork. I'm gonna assume that it's Joe Staten artwork, but he's very much aping the uh Bob Kane and Bill Finger Batman in the nineteen forties or thirties and forties, and it's got two face looming in the background, and it's twice the thrills, double the danger, two for one, Batman Two Face Strikes twice. It's a two-issue miniseries appearing in October with uh, writer Mike W. Barr, art by Joe Staton, and I guess inks by Derek Gross. Uh, it's a very 1940s-looking Batman and Robin, and it's nice-looking stuff. Uh, again, Staten is able to pull off these very cartoony-like characters, and this stuff does look very cartoony, so... For a modern comics artist, if you're used to the sort of George Perez and Jose Luis... I can't even say his name right. The the sacred one. Fire and Water podcast guys know what I'm talking about. Garcia Lopez type stuff. His stuff may look a, a little juvenile, but it's really great because it actually looks like the 1940s stuff. Good looking stuff here. And of course, the back outside cover is an advertisement for the big game of the time. Mortal Kombat, which was out on all the systems, Game Boy, Game Gear, Genesis, and Super NES. And it's got the typical blurbs of the most awesome fighting action, earmarked whip Street Fighter II into the pit where, it has, where has-beens fester. Mortal Kombat was the game of the time. But that finishes up the issues, that finishes up ads, and it only leads me to the sad news again that... None of these comics have been collected in any way, shape, or form into trade paperbacks. Which is a shame. Hopefully, uh, Comixology will be fixing that, but if you can't go check out uh, the back issues of your comic book dealer, um, these books are well worth it. The Trinity Storyline, and definitely Yesterday's Sins. If you're even remotely interested in Guy Gardner, this is something you have to pick up. But Even though the coverage of yesterday's Sins is over, we're not done with Guy Gardner yet. There's a few things to tie up, and next week we're going to be covering a couple of issues. The JLA issue, I think, number 82, which is part one of uh, The Trouble with Guy's, which wraps up what was happening with Guy's clone on Earth, and Guy Gardner number 15, which is the second part of that story, which wraps up what Guy does to his clone. And then... In Green Lantern, we get a big crossover event. I guess something has been happening with Superman and Green Lantern goes to find out what. And, because it is a Superman based uh, story, I'm going to have an extra special guest on. So, definitely come back next week for episode number 46 of Just One of the Guys where we're going to be covering the sort of final arc for uh, Green Lantern and the final arc of the Reign of Super- the Superman story. In all honesty, I actually got with the uh, special guest and recorded with him last week. It was a heck of a time, and I think you're really going to enjoy the show. So be certain to tune in next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, and we'll catch you then. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingalls. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback of the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at podcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcome too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at just one of the guys. All one word. Dot Libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. Dot com. There you can find the RSS feed as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast and be sure to leave a review. I'd love to read it on the next show, if you're in the United States. If not, shoot me an email, and I'll go to the uh, iTunes for your country, and read the review there. You can also search me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there, because I don't have an account there. But if you have enough free time to listen to the Babylon about funny book characters, you obviously can spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, Come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show was Trinity by the band Paper Tongues, off their album self-titled Paper Tongues. If you want, you can go download this song from iTunes. But preferably, I'd suggest you go to 2 click on the Amazon banner at the top of the page, and go download the song, album, or buy the CD from Amazon.com. Christmas is coming around just about a week away now, and last-minute shopping is going to be tough. Rather than go to the malls, why don't you go to Amazon.com? Shipping's inexpensive, even though it is getting kind of close to Christmas. And the best way to get things done is to go through the Two True Freaks website and clicking the banner over to Amazon.com, making sure that Chris and Scott, well, Chris, since Scott's on sort of a hiatus, is able to keep on the virtual lights over at the podcast.